Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Koval, CapEx's editor. Today I'll be talking to Baroness Stroud, the new head of the Legatum Institute. On the surface, Philippa Stroud has the perfect Westminster CV, yet her story is actually one of the most fascinating and unusual in modern politics. If you look at your CV for the last 10 years and just, just look at the CV, it looks like a very sort of Westminster thing. You founded a think tank, the Centre for Social Justice. You were Ian Duncan Smith's special advisor. You went to the Lords as, as uh, Baroness Stroud of, of Fulham, which yes. is a bit about as metropolitan <laughs> as it gets. Um, and then you, uh, then you, uh, now, then you went to, back to the CSJ and now you're running Legatum. But then if you look at the sort of sweep of your career, you're at, you, know, you, you spent 20 years doing all sorts of things which no one else in Westminster would really have done. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, so um, I started my um, career, if you can call it that, um, in Hong Kong working with drug addicts. And um, I was living and working in a slum area of Hong Kong called the Wall City, uh, which has in fact been uh, pulled down now. Um, it was um, an area of Hong Kong that um, had been left out of the treaty between Britain and China and um, uh, was therefore a no-man's land. Because just no one was that bothered about it? Well, no, because it was in fact Chinese territory but inside British territory, so it couldn't be policed by anybody. And what it meant was that it became a haven for Blue Film Theatre, drug addiction, triad activity. And um, I had the privilege of living there and working with the people who, who lived there before it was pulled down. And um, we worked with uh, drug addicts to see one life changed one at a time. And it was, a, it was just an amazing privilege to see the courage of these um, individuals as they went through uh, the decisions that they needed to make to change the trajectory of their lives. And did you have any family connections with Hong Kong, or was it just sort of spinning, spin the wheel and see where it lands? No, um, I um, I had thought I was going to go into international banking post um, post university, and I had done um, work experience in the city in a merchant bank and in a French bank, and had very much thought that that would be you know I'd do the standard go to university, leave university, go go and work in the city. But um, I just, as I was ending my um, time at university, and I had spent, um, uh, I'd studied French, so I'd spent a year in France. And during that year, 
um, I'd had more time on my hands than probably you would normally have um, because I was in a foreign country. I didn't know that many people. And um, I got to observe um, French society. And I was in this beautiful city, Aix-en-Provence. And um, But actually, the thing that struck me about it was the homeless people. And I didn't have any answers. And I tried... I tried talking with them, I tried giving them money, I tried buying them loads of bread while they were asleep and leaving them there, and none of it was satisfying. And um, it led me to um, it led me to ask questions about um, how do you how do you really care for people who are seriously disadvantaged? It, it was one of those. Um, uh, it, just extraordinary set of experiences when I when I was in France and I came back to the UK a couple of times for holidays and things I had a number of people just come up to me and said oh you really remind me of this lady who's who's leading this work have you ever thought of going to work with her and I hadn't uh, but it just kind of got me to start um, thinking and then um, uh, just n numbers of different people started um, told me about the work that she was doing and in the end I thought you know what, just on the off chance I'll write to her and um, I wrote this letter to her saying um, uh, I'm not experienced at working uh, with people with addictions, in fact I'm a French student <laughs> um, but um, if you would be interested in having me I would be interested in coming and um, we spent a year of kind of corresponding backwards and forwards but in fact before she even said yes I bought my ticket to go to Hong Kong because I was so convinced by that stage that I should be going. And what was it about what she was doing that, that spoke to you? I think it was that um, she um, had an understanding of how to work with very disadvantaged people and see life transformation and see lives completely turned around and I didn't know of anywhere else where they were they were really doing that and I think that what was so extraordinary um, is that if you are an addict in the UK and um, you go through a drug rehab um, centre um, and you um, and you, you, fall, you fall out of it or you don't succeed going through it um, the chances are you may get one other chance but you won't, you won't get many opportunities but what she was doing was saying if this takes you know, 12 times 15 times, 18 times or whatever, uh, we are committed to seeing you go on your journey through this and you often find that with addiction is that um, people don't make it the first time and um, but actually each time they come back in they make another another choice and they go a little bit further and um, it was just uh, it was just amazing to see her commitment to the whole journey of an individual not just that moment that they were in her program and presumably you were you weren't sort of commuting in from the from the, from the nicer parts of Hong Kong no, you, no, were, no, you were in there with yeah so I I, um, uh, I spent um, uh, how long probably about eight ten months living in the walled city and then I went out to Macau and led a, a, a drug withdrawal house out in Macau um, of addicts who were coming off heroin and um, and actually lived in in the program itself. So, yeah. Did you ever feel sort of in danger? Because I mean, you were—you you presumably didn't speak the language. You were sort of thousands of miles away from 
from yeah. our own. I mean, and these are people who are in a really, really bad situation. Yeah, no, so I um, did I have a new job? I, I absolutely loved being there, but it wasn't without its danger. I mean, like, um, the really annoying thing is if you if you got a taxi back to the wall city, they sometimes wouldn't take you there, which was actually even more dangerous because they actually didn't believe that that's where you were going. So they just didn't want to be the person who... Was responsible for dropping off the poor, poor innocent white girl. Who yeah, was so that was really annoying. Um, but um, uh, I think I got to know quite a lot of the um, guys in the Ward City, and therefore um, they they were quite protective of us actually as, as well. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't without its danger, obviously. But um, it was uh, an environment that I loved being in. And then you decide to come back to the UK to sort of set up a similar program yes. over here, is that yes. in, in Bedford, is that, is mm. that right? So um, I set up a, a four-stage project in Bedford, which was a night shelter, a hostel, a rehab house and a halfway house back into the community. And um, that um, was taking some of the principles, but obviously working in a UK context um, is um, there's a lot more legislation, a lot more things that you need to be um, aware of. Um, but that was that was a real privilege as well. That took me ten years to build that project. Is it still going today? Yes, it is. Um, so not in exactly the same uh, format, uh, but the the work itself is going there. And I always said to the people there when I when I left, which is many many years ago, is the houses are just a a vehicle. It's the it's the work and the vision of the work that's crucial. But you mentioned before that you know you were sort of disappointed that no one else was doing this kind of work. Were you quite driven by the, the data in an odd way? I mean, were you sort of looking at how successful you you were compared to other approaches? Um, do you know? I think um, I have become over the last thirty years um, highly data driven. In my early twenties, I was not experienced or data driven. Um, I um, we were focused on. On seeing life change one by one by one, um, but uh, uh, now that I have seen things from a government perspective and from a community, not just a, a personal transformation, but a community and national transformation perspective, I'm a lot more data driven. At what point do you sort of decide that you need to go into politics effectively? That you need to. You know, that you're sort of saving souls on an individual basis is all very well, but that national policies need to change. Is it just a, a sort of chance encounter with IDS? Or is it no, it was before a chance encounter with IDS, actually. In fact, the chance encounter with IDS came because I was looking for a way to take up onto a national level the things that I'd been learning on a local level. So after Bedford, we went to Birmingham and um, started um, supported accommodation for homeless people. And I think... Um, the Bedford project took me 10 years to build and uh, what we were doing in Birmingham took uh, five years to build. And I think that um, uh, in the middle of all of that, I had, I had my children, I had, I had three children. And um, I, I, it was a good pause moment for me to kind of reflect back on the last X number of years and think, actually... Um, uh, it has taken this amount of energy and this amount of hard work and dedication to build projects that see life change one by one of about 50 people. Um, but then down the road, there's another 50. And down the road, there's another 50. And bearing in mind, we were living in Birmingham, so the landscape was much bigger than somewhere like Bedford. 
and um, and then down the road there's another 50 and yet the causal factors of all of this are exactly the same and um, and I just started thinking you know I could keep building these projects or I can start turning off the tap and seeing whether or not we can start doing some national interventions that actually reduce social breakdown. What was different about your understanding of the problem than, than other people's? So um, the the people that I was working with on the projects that I was working with were not short of money, but nowhere could they go to um, get the sort of interventions that they that they needed. So. Um, I remember one day I was actually coming down to um, speak at the Conservative Party. I wasn't a Conservative Party member at this point in time. I was coming down to, to, to speak at the Conservative Party and I just thought... I was coming down to speak about the role of the voluntary sector in the community. And um, I just thought... I I believe I know what's driving all of this, but I had jolly well better check <laughs> before I come down and take a platform. Um, and uh, I thought I would just sit down with each of my residents one by one and in private so that they weren't kind of bouncing off each other. And I asked each of them the question, um, if there could have been something that didn't happen in your life that would have meant you wouldn't have needed a place like this, what would it have been? And literally, to a man or a woman, they answered the question. It all began when um, my father walked out or my stepfather walked in. And um, the disintegration of the family and the, um, the violence in some of these families um, and the abuse in some of these families um, was such a, a theme uh, running through... Uh, what we were doing, but that was not being talked about in a national politics. It was kind of just treating the symptoms, not the cause. Yeah, so it was like um, uh, governments were very happy to pay lots of money, or not lots of money, but money to these people. But actually, what they really, um, what 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 they really wanted was um, strong, stable families. And I suppose this is why you end up with the Tories rather than Labour, because most people who've been working in the voluntary sector. In the, in the in the churches are you know would tend to drift to the left because that's seen as the kind of compassionate part of society yeah politics yeah so I think that um, I mean I, I I really seriously looked at each of the different political parties because I was not political at this point in time um, but I felt that um, uh, that um, only redistribution through the welfare state was not going to be the answer. Um, to the nature of the problems that I was seeing on the ground and that although the thinking was not that well developed at this point in time within the Conservative Party the innovative thinking and the thinking that was mirroring and reflecting what I was seeing on the ground was coming out of the Conservative Party so um, uh, I had just met Tim Montgomery and he, at that moment in time, had been invited by William Hague, this is going back a long time, into the basement of Conservative Central Office, which was in Smith Square at that point in time. Um, and they, he had founded an organisation called Renewing One Nation. And um, they were looking at um, the life cycle um, of, of people and the different interventions at different stages that were required. And that was a lot more along the lines of of family, education, mental health, work, 
indebtedness, these, these sorts of things, um, which um, developed into the five pathways to poverty. This is a piece of analysis that we did um, uh, in a, for a piece of work actually commissioned by David Cameron, but looking at the pathways to poverty, which were family breakdown, failed education, addiction, debt and welfare dependency, and obviously the five pathways out were the stabilising families, um, decent education, mental health solutions, managing one's money and work. But obviously you become most, you sort of get, not national prominence, but you get sort of problems within the Tory party um, when you link up with IDS who's mm. had his own well, road to Damascus uh, moment mm. at, um, at Easter House when he goes up mm. to see the sort of the, the worst sink estate in, in Glasgow and is just appalled by, yeah. by what he finds yeah so it was it was a really um, extraordinary meeting of Ian and I because I, I was just asking the questions how do I translate everything I've learned from a local level up onto a national level. At the time where we met just after he had lost the leadership. So um, he was asking the question, I had this platform, I no longer have this platform, how do I use who I am on a national level to take forward everything that I've just seen on a local level? And, and we meet, and, um, uh, and Tim at that point in time was just finishing being his political advisor, and the CSJ is born out of that. It's hard to sort of recognise now because these are all sort of quite well-entrenched ideas, but primarily there's, there's universal credits, um, but also things like um, modern slavery. The sort of social conscience of the Tory party yeah. starts, to, starts to really grow during, yeah. during that time. Yeah, I mean, it's... It was, it was huge, exciting. I mean, you, we look back now, and these themes are very familiar now within the Conservative Party. I mean, it went from the breakdown, breakthrough Britain reports, um, then we took universal credit into government. Um, Theresa May did the modern day slavery, which had come out of uh, out of the CSJ, um, as you as you say. Then we built um, the life chances agenda in government, which was a mirroring of the five pathways um, to to poverty, but. But actually, when we, we started out, um, uh, all these themes were pretty much um, not in existence. And I can remember Tim, um, when we first uh, launched the CSJ, he, he did a, a picture of a typewriter, which only had three keys to it, which were um, Europe, um, immigration and tax. And that actually the vision of the CSJ was to restore all the other, it was an old-fashioned typewriter, all the, all the other keys to it of family, employment, you know, um, managing our personal finances, all of these sorts of things, modern-day slavery. And um, uh, so it became a hugely exciting agenda to be part and, of. And presumably the fact that Cameron is trying to do yes. much the same thing. Yes, Yes, no, very, very, um, very exciting. And the hugger hoodie that he was known for was actually at um, a day conference that um, the CSJ hosted to bring together all the players in the early intervention space. And we actually entitled the conference Thugs uh, Beyond Redemption? Question mark. I mean, it sounds awful now, um, but uh, and. <laughs> And actually, we had um, it was it was looking at um, you know gang culture. Is is there a possible way out? I mean, that's what we were. These were the questions that we were asking, and um, lots of the work that the CSJ did was on on gangs and looking at creating pathways out for for gang members. 
on the modern slavery issue, actually. Theresa May has just given an interview confirming that it's the thing she's proudest of. And we actually talked to Frank Field uh, for another of these interviews, and he said it was a, a, co- a conference you hosted that that sort of started the ball rolling. And he, his, his claim was that um, Fraser Nelson had sort of gone over over time and left Frank with about sort of t- 20 seconds to say something. And Frank hadn't really pre- prepared anything because he'd not really wanted to go to the, the conference. He'd, just been, he'd been told by his advisor that he needed to do something to, to look le- like less of an immigration... Uh, uh, you know, he'd, he'd been talking about immigration and he needed to remind people that he, he cared about the poor fascist. as well. Yeah, fascist as well. <laughs> and so then he said, well, um, you know, I've only got time to say two things. Um, let's call it slavery and, and we need a bill. And then from from that, the sort of the the, the avalanche starts. That's the sort of snowball that starts the avalanche. I mean, that, the story of the modern slavery bill is is extraordinary. Um, I don't know whether you want me to tell it here. Um, no, please. Uh, um, we, we, we can always. You can, you can always <laughs> edit I can remember the day that um, uh, a few young businessmen came to me at CSJ. This is a number of years ago, and their question to me was how do you go about changing something in a nation? And they asked me that question before they told me what they were interested in. So I said to them uh, that the best way of changing um, something in a nation before you um, even embark on, on, the, on the journey is you have to understand um, that issue really well from top to bottom. You have to know all the evidence of it. You have to have done a complete analysis of the nature of the problem and you have to have developed solutions that match the scale of the problem if you really want to go about changing something. And often in politics you have kind of solutions that sound like they come somewhere near the problem, but actually they don't genuinely resolve the issue. And I said, if you really want to resolve something, you have to have a clear analysis of the problem with scalable solutions that match the size of the problem. And so they just said to me at the end, right, we want one of those. And the issue that they wanted it on was modern-day slavery. So I said, well, one of those report costs us this amount to do. And they said, right, we'll come back to you when we have the money. And they went and raised the money for it, and they came back and they commissioned the report. And um, they were absolutely amazing. And then... I can remember once the report was was published, everybody thought that it was completely self-evident that you would do it. And um, because there was so much, there was such a packed government kind of legislative program, it got stuck in number 10. And um, I can remember, you know, conversations with advisors in number 10 where I was told, you know, Philip, this isn't a priority. And I, and I, so I, I wrote an email saying why I thought it was a priority for government and why... And you were in government by this point. Yes, and why I thought that uh, British families didn't want our progress as a nation made on the backs of slavery. And um, I remember Oliver Letwin emailing me and saying, I think we need to talk about this, Philippa. You obviously feel quite strongly about it. <laughs> and um, they said, if you can find a Secretary of State who will, who will take the legislation through, you can do it. And um, I thought, you know, should we go to William Hague, he'd written the William Wilberforce book, or should I go to Theresa May, who, um, you know, is Home Secretary, so this is obviously in in her patch. I thought, um, I knew Fiona Cunningham, um, now Hill, and I thought, I'll have a chat with Fiona, and she was just like, we need to be in this space, Philippa, and Theresa will definitely want to do this. And we met, and it was just like an open door, so it was amazing. (laughs) 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You, not ever, <laughs> to put it politely, not everything in government goes as, goes as smoothly. Uh, and in particular, you, so you and IDS get in with this agenda for universal credit, which... Uh, it requires spending extra money and sort of massive institutional and organisational changes, especially to database systems. And neither of these quite happen at the, it's fair to say, at the scale or pace with which you'd want them. And there is this, a, a running battle with the with the Treasury for, for five years. I mean, is that... That's bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> are you sort of proud of what you accomplished or are you regretful about what, what didn't happen? I am proud of what we accomplished and in fact Universal Credit is being rolled out and is obviously a huge change to the welfare state um, and will restore work incentives to those in employment. It's already, that's already, already happening. Would I have liked to have done it not in an age of austerity when we could just have had a clear run at positive welfare reform because yeah, the idea Absolutely. was because the idea was that work should always pay and that yeah. turns into not working should always be punished in in in, in some in some respects there's a kind of there's a, there's a, the slider between stick and carrot does sort of because it does does shift because Osborne needs to well I, I I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with that um, and um, work um, after universal credit will pay we would have liked to obviously like the system to be more generous um, and I would I've been quite vocal about the fact that I think that the the last lot of cuts that were taken out should be reversed these are the ones that IDS resigned over um, no no actually the ones that he resigned over never went ahead um, these were actually when the tax credit cuts were reversed the cuts to universal credit which equated to the cuts to tax credits um, were not reversed. So um, although people will be transitionally protected as they move from one system to the other, so they won't feel any loss, the investment into universal credit, if you were a new claimant, is less than it than it would have been. And the other thing that I think should be removed is the seven-day waiting period as well. So, um, so those are two things that I would, would love to see 
addressed in, in universal credit. Um, but uh, the actual um, system itself, a universal credit is just a mechanism for through which you put um, uh, money in from the welfare state. And um, that structure itself and that m- that method of delivery, I'm really proud of. Um, but the, the thing about being in government is that um, there are lots of competing agendas. And um, obviously, we took forward huge welfare reform at a time of austerity, and that was a that was a real challenge. And what about the organisational issues? Because there's also the fact mm. that you know it, there, there, there were two, these two giant databases for tax and for welfare that needed to be crunched yeah. together, and the project is reset, and as well, you know, as well as the battles with the Treasury, you have battles with the Cabinet Office under Francis Maud. I mean, yeah. did, did you bite off more than you can chew? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't think that we ever thought this was a small task to do. Um, I mean, what was really interesting is that, um, and I think this is this is not what is understood by by what happened. I'm not sure it's a story that's really been told. But in um, we went into government in 2010 and took the legislation through in in 2011, and the department pretty much started the build of universal credit straight away. At that time, the only way of building a huge welfare system was through a traditional legacy build. In 20... So, so you mean signing a giant contract with the giant yeah. IT company yeah. Yeah. of exactly the kind that Francis Maud then so, tries to get rid of? Absolutely. So then in 2012, the government publishes its digital strategy. Uh, bearing in mind that we had already started building universal credit by this time. In 2013, what follows is basically a philosophical battle about how you build big systems. Do you build a legacy build or do you build um, a traditional, um, a, a di- a, an innovative digital build? And that's, that's basically the battle that kind of rages um, and in um, 2014 we basically decided to build both um, it's, it's, I mean that's um, so the traditional legacy system um, is um, what begins to get rolled out but during that time we're building the digital system which will be the long term system and um, uh, that that enables us to bring people onto universal credit safely and well and begin to see some of the transformation and test it and get the change that's required in all of the job centre pluses all the way around and the systemic change, which actually then enables the introduction of the digital system to happen significantly more smoothly. I so mean, some people argue that it's a model way of doing it. Uh, it, it didn't feel that way. <laughs> I mean, did the experience sort of sour you on government as a... The thing to be inside. No, no, it didn't. I. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I. I definitely came to the conclusion that um, if you look at the five pathways to poverty: family, education, addiction, debt, and welfare. Welfare is the one that you have to be in government to change. All of the others you can actually change and find levers for outside of government. So I'm really grateful that we had those years inside government in order to really address that one. But I've been, I was looking forward to also being able to address some of the other ones from outside government. When you were in government, did you ever feel the need to um, 
repeatedly say, I've done this, I've been at the ground to prove yourself? Or was it an easy transition? I mean, lots of people feel that politicians are incredibly disconnected. And obviously you've worked on the ground not only in the UK, but also in Hong Kong. So did you ever need to say, I've actually done this, I actually have a so stand on? So your moral authority? Um, uh, not not particularly. I, I hope that my approach to all of these issues um, in government um, always demonstrated an understanding of the people that we were working in order to benefit. So um, one of the things that I always tried to do when I was in government was create an open door for people who were working on the front line to connect in with us um, and to give them... Um, an opportunity to influence what we were doing. So as a, as a special advisor in, in government um, I was probably um, had significantly more meetings with um, external charities, voluntary sector organisations etc. Partly I wanted to remain connected to what was happening on the ground but in my mind all the time I had the faces of people who I had worked with over many years and often I was thinking, would it have benefited so-and-so? Would it have benefited so-and-so? If not, let's not do this. Um, and if it would, then let's really put some energy behind this. But I mean, you have the advantage, I suppose, that mo- you know, most people in your position, special advisors, are in their 20s. Their job is to protect their minister politically and mm. to hope- hopefully you know, get them, make their way up the ladder. You and IDS are both quite clear, to the frustration of George Osborne, <laughs> among others, that you, know, you are in that you are... Yeah in government to do this thing yeah. and you have a, you have this mission and that's what you care about yeah and I think um, and also neither of us were um, were motivated by building a career and it meant that um, the, the 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 weighing up for us all the time was um, can we do more in government to benefit the people that we started this journey for and the moment that that balance became balanced the other way for us both was was um, a time not to stay because you always have to there will always be a moment to go I think um, uh, most moments of going are not particularly glorious in government <laughs> and um, I think for us it was always we know what we're, we're here to do um, and um, it's it's government is a way of doing it but it's not the only way of doing it and um, if there if there is a a way outside of government that is more effective then that would be the route that you would choose so were you already sort of on the exit path when the offer of a place in the lords came through i mean was this a, was this kind of a cunning way of getting <laughs> getting you out of the way or was it uh, i mean how did it how did that come about um i had um in fact after the 2015 election um I, I had spent um, uh, quite a bit of time during the during the Perda period of, of the election thinking, what do I want to do next? And um, uh, when Ian came back as Secretary of State into the Department for Work and yeah, Pensions... Because you're, you're not expecting to win the election, or you're, there's a significant doubt about that. Yes, about that. so everyone has their plan A and their plan B at that moment in time. And I kind of fell in love with my plan B. And... Um, I, um, but when Ian went back in, I knew that he was going to need to take twelve billion out of welfare, and um, I hadn't, I hadn't thought that I would go back in with him. But when he went back in, um, and it was quite obvious that that task was going to need to happen, 
um, I thought that's a really really difficult task do I do I want to leave it to somebody who doesn't know the welfare budget inside out and who will do it um, brutally or um, do I want it to be done as carefully um, as possible well, I mean, how, do you, how do you make those decisions and well so, so that's why um, I went back in but when I went back, back in I said to Ian um, I'm only coming back in to help you do this um, once this is done which I thought would be about, by about Christmas time I will, I, I will leave but that was purely between Ian and I and then um, but then in fact um, Cameron asked me to go into the Lords I mean, but, I mean that must have been sort of quite agonising I mean you've already made all these cuts you personally believe that they're not, they're not justified you know that people will suffer if you do this so how do you make those those decisions about who suffers most? I mean, I think I mean they were they were they were hugely difficult decisions to make, and um, they were they were ones that um, you know behind the scenes I expended a huge amount of energy explaining to people the consequences of of doing them, and in fact, they, um, a good proportion of them never happened. But what, what were you, where were you trying to shift them to and, to and from, if you see what I mean? I, I actually didn't think it was possible to take that amount out only from working age. So there are huge parts of the welfare budget that um, through promises that were made at the election... The triple lock, for example. Well, the triple lock, but also on the universal benefit. So as the election went on... Um, more and more was being taken off the table more and more promises were being made so what was difficult but possible when Osborne first announced it became almost impossible by the time we actually came to the table because so many areas of the welfare budget had been taken taken off the table and which is why when um, I came out of government I I uh, spoke and wrote publicly about the fact that the tax credit cuts should not go ahead and presumably also that the triple lock should... should I, I haven't actually looked up what your position is on that, but I assume that it's it's that it's all very well, but it's protecting pensioners at the expense of, of others. Yeah, I mean, I've um, the, the thing about um, the triple lock and protecting the um, pensioners is that um, uh, I'm not sure that the triple lock is necessary, but I think that this, the thinking behind protecting pensioners is right in that... Um, uh, these are people who are least able to change the trajectory of their life just because of the life stage that they are at Um, but there's a whole kind of swathe of universal benefits um, that I always thought why are we protecting universal benefits of people going right up the income stream when we're removing TV licenses, bus passes and I just I I genuinely believe that there should be a very honest conversation and almost a a commission on welfare cross-party commission because um, uh, Labour are known to protect um, you know the the, um, the the benefits of the poorest, and the um, and rightly so. And the and conservatives are known for protecting um, the uh, the universal benefits. But actually, we should be asking what is a twenty first century welfare state required to do, and what is the best way of constructing it. And um, it shouldn't be providing an income for people who can who have a who have a decent income. 
And so, and when you go to the Lords, is that because you're needed in the Lords, or because Cameron wants to get you you out of the way, or just as a, as a reward for, for work well done? I couldn't comment, but um, I do know that there was hardly, when I arrived in the Lords, there was hardly any welfare experience in the Lords and um, on the Conservative benches. And um, it's been a real pleasure to be able to speak on issues of poverty, welfare, family, um, homelessness uh, from the Conservative benches um, in the um, in the Lords. And so you, as well as going to the Lords, you you then go back to the CSJ, and then you make this leap to look at to the Garden, which is where we are today in this beautifully appointed library. And you you know, so you're going from from this area, you know an awful lot about to suddenly a, a sort of very different focus and um, so for those who don't know Legatum's sort of flagship project has always, has been the prosperity index which is a measure of how prosperous and open and secure and happy and functioning uh, countries around the world are so was it a case of sort of widening your horizons or being, being a bit bored with welfare after all these in the UK after all these years no 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 so um uh when um, I started having conversations uh, with the Lagarton Institute about coming here, um, uh, one, as you rightly say, the flagship programme is the Prosperity Index. But the Prosperity Index is not quite as you've just described it. It's actually about um, uh, economic and social well-being and what drives and creates healthy and strong uh, societies and um, property uh, rights, rule of law, yes, democracy, yeah, open markets, all. Yes, and so for um, for me, this has been about um, having the space to build the from poverty to prosperity arc, and um, also to identify the top uh, challenges of our generation and the top opportunities of our generation and to um, be, and so legatum actually means legacy it actually means um, how do we pass a better legacy on to the next generation and for me that is about addressing the challenges and taking hold of the opportunities now some of those challenges are very fairly and squarely in the poverty space and um, uh, some of them, which is why we focused on Brexit, for example, are very much in the in the Brexit space. But even when you look at what's going on in in, in Brexit, you have all the kind of um, trading opportunities, but you also have the 52% who voted uh, for this. And the reason why they did that was because of job insecurity, um, lack of access to housing, um, uh, education challenges, and... Um, health challenges and some of these things are very much the space that I've been in for a very long time and you've got in uh, Matthew Elliott who ran the, the Leave campaign to, who's looking at populism for absolutely. you absolutely and then you have to ask the question what is sitting underneath populism um, it is um, a lot of the we saw this with the Trump vote is actually a lot of this is coming out of the more disadvantaged communities and I just feel that um, to put uh, the strength uh, of the Institute behind research on these issues, um, with all my experience of uh, frontline poverty fighting, community transformation, and then national transformation, is actually just an extension of everything I've been doing all the way through my life. Although you followed this arc from the very personal, which is working with addicts on a one-to-one -one yeah. basis, to the sort of the vast and impersonal, in the sense of you know yeah. how what makes countries 
countries yeah. work, and what make, and also with your work on the work on free trade, you know what makes relationships between countries work in the way that delivers prosperity. Yeah, but if you listen to our, our special trade commissioners who are here, they totally understand that one of the best ways of addressing poverty is actually through trade. And um, and I think that I was um, at the back of the room. Actually. Yeah, well, you've heard Nicholas Nigley talk talk about talk about this. So if, so for me, if I take my own journey, I saw lives change one by one, then communities transformed, and then I uh, was involved in in transforming uh, a, national, a national transformation program. So for me, this is this is all coming out of life change on a one-on-one basis because actually you don't get national transformation without it it's made up of one life after one life after one life so the the thing we haven't talked about which is sort of one of the through lines of your career and sort of the, the, of the why you're doing this is it's religious faith and you know you've obviously that you've had there's been some controversy in your career over so the bedford project for example there are accusations that there you know pe- people are are you know, um, gays and trans- transgender people are you know are having the demons prayed out of them, and you know, that that you are and your your husband is a is a church leader of the kind of who signs up to the Westminster Declaration, which is a very sort of conservative version of of Christianity. I mean, do you you know have does does I mean does that coverage reflect actually reflect your your views? No, not at all. And in fact, um, uh, I was. Um, it's heartbreaking, actually, for me. That was um, because it it doesn't uh, represent my views, and um, I have the privilege of of working with people um, from hugely diverse backgrounds, and that for me is a very rich experience. And um, uh, I, um, yeah, I was deeply saddened. Would you say you'd been on a personal journey, or, or just that you were in that kind of horribly cliched way, or just that you were? You know that that you were misrepresented uh, by the by the press. So, so for, so for me, um, uh, I think I it would be true to say that I have spent all my life trying, in a very non judgmental way, um, to support people to fulfil who they are and their their potential, and um, uh, and so. And as being as inclusive as inclusive as possible. So, um, uh, and was in fact at the department involved in um, helping the gay marriage legislation go through. Um, so, so for me, it's um, as I say, it was heartbreaking. Yes, when you Google your name, that's one of the things that that comes up. And likewise, when you Google the, the Bedford Project, it comes up as this is a, a group of crazy evangelicals who are doing uh, crazy things, which presumably puts off might put off people from coming to be helped there? Um, um, I think that um, for the people who know them um, and who who work with them and who go to that project, it's been really beneficial for them. I mean, the great thing about a voluntary sector organisation is that people can choose whether or not to go there or not. And um, uh, when I was there, um, we had homeless people, addicts, alcoholics... Um, this is who we were working with, and um, uh, so the way that it was represented was not was not how it was. I mean, one of the things Frank Field said was that there's this weird paradox where the church as an institution, or you know, faith as a, is is collapsing within society. It's sort of dwindling, ebbing away. But yet, 
so much of the good work within society on a grassroots level is being done by by people of faith. Um, so his example was the fact that you know the, the Corbynite activists in his constituency seems to devote most of their time to trying to get him deselected. And if they spent you know a fraction of that time helping out at food banks, say, yeah. the world would be a slightly better place. Yeah, I mean I think that we are um, you know we talk about being a tolerant society. Um, and yet um, uh, we're often actually quite intolerant of one another and um, uh, I think that um, we can grow in our respect um, and I, um, I had the most beautiful conversation the other day with um, a Muslim friend of mine in the, in the House of Lords and um, I was just trying to understand her faith and she was trying to understand mine. And at the end of it, we actually said to each other, you know, if this had been recorded as a BBC kind of listening uh, project, it would have been a really rich experience as she was telling me about the fact that the Muslim faith, um, their idea of loving their neighbour is to serve seven houses to the left and seven houses to the right. And uh, I thought that was really really beautiful but we need to understand each other's faiths better so that actually we can have them faith is running through the heart of society it does if we push it to the sides um, actually that's when you get extremism you actually need faith running through the warp and weft of society because that's when it's healthy and I mean, when 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 did you were you brought up in a religious religious no. household, or did you have the that conversion experience? No, I I wasn't brought up in a in a religious um, family, and um, uh, my my faith just kind of grew grew quietly and was deeply deeply personal, um, and uh, has probably just grown and grown and been an enormous strength to me. I don't speak about it. I don't really speak about my faith, but it is the strength that drives me um, in so much of what I do, and um, it's uh, it's why I'm deeply committed to individuals of all sorts of backgrounds because I view a human being, regardless of anything they've done, said, or whatever, whatever, as deeply valuable. Thank you for listening to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor, and I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe. Subscribe.